0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news and resources and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with my dear friend, Wes Granberg-Michelson, about his latest book entitled, Without Oars*, Casting Off into a Life of Pilgrimage, and how people of faith can embrace the journey through the unknown and the uncomfortable as a way of life. Reverend Wesley Granberg-Michelson is a global ecumenical leader whose work has been shaped by the inward and outward journey of faith. He was legislative assistant to Senator Mark O. Hatfield, Director of Church and Society for the World Council of Churches, and served for 17 years as General Secretary of the Reformed Church in America. Wes has been involved with sojourners from our beginnings, our earliest days, and today still chairs the Board of Sojourners. Without Oars, Casting Off into a Life of Pilgrimage is his 10th book. So, Wes, welcome. I'm so glad you're with us today. But let me start with something that one of our mutual spiritual directors would always ask each of us over lunch or before a conversation. Wes, how's your spirit these days? Mm. Well, thank you,
1: Jim. That brings back precious memories. How was my spirit? Well, my spirit is uh, expectantly hopeful and waiting as I try to live into this strange Advent, uh, an Advent where we are in a sea of tumult over the pandemic, this moment of racial reckoning and a uh, presidential transition. Uh, What does it mean? I'm asking myself to be expectantly hopeful but also learning what it means to wait for those things that might not be obvious but might be the real message we need to hear
0: the mutual spiritual director was gordon cosby the pastor and founder of church of the savior which really shaped sojourners early on and and you you were you were a member there and and uh, really set you on this journey of the inward and outward journey which was there their core, their vocation, their charism. Gordon would always ask us that core question. How is your spirit these days? Um, The word pilgrimage is throughout your book. Uh, Tell our listeners how how you were so instrumental in the early pilgrimage of sojourners to Washington, D.C. and Capitol Hill to the world of politics. Tell the story of how you and then Senator Mark Hatfield first encountered this Ragtag group of seminarians in Chicago. Well, it was um, it was back in
1: uh, 1971. Uh, we were in the midst of the Vietnam War. Uh, I was the, as you mentioned, uh, Senator Hatfield's chief legislative assistant. But it really meant that I was uh, his, uh, you know, his aide that was standing shoulder to shoulder, supporting him as one of the leaders of the anti-war movement from the Congress, he and Senator George McGovern, uh, Democrat and Republican, led that effort. Uh, And Senator Hedford was also a uh, strong evangelical, Um, but uh, the number of uh, evangelicals who were anti-war, you could probably fit in a closet about that time. Uh, And and he was lonely and often assaulted. Um, And I shared in that. I felt I was kind of in a wilderness with him. One day, this uh, newsprint, uh, newspaper came across my desk called the Post-American, and I began to read it, began to read about uh, some group calling for the de-Americanization of the gospel and about retrieving the biblical roots that called us to a radical stance towards peace and justice. Um, And the more I read, I said, I had no idea there was anyone else thinking this way. Uh, I was captivated by it. It was a Friday. So I walked into the senator's office while he was preparing to leave. And I said, Senator, this just came. I just thought you might want to read it over the weekend, take a look at it. It's really interesting. So Monday morning came. He came into the office and I as usual when I went into the office to check in with them. And I said, what, what did you, what did you think about that post-American? And he looked at me and he said, get these people on the telephone right now. (laughs) So I scurried around and somehow found a telephone number for someone named Jim Wallace and, uh, got him on the phone with uh, Mark Hatfield. And that really began the relationship that I had with you, Jim. And, uh, and with the Sojourners community, it was a little later uh, over Christmas. Uh, my parents were living in Chicago. That I came home from Christmas and then met the the early community. It hadn't it wasn't even called Sojourners yet then, but the community that was being formed around this vision at that time in Washington, in uh, Chicago, and then um, later uh, moved uh, to Washington D.C.
0: And that was really our pilgrimage into. Uh... Public life in Washington. I remember we were sitting around in our living room. We put the Post American together one summer. We shared this house. We painted the house to get free rent. And then we did this publication. We sat around doing our mailing list. Who should be on the mailing list? It was like calling out names, right? Postcards. And I said, well, um, the two senators in Washington who really are leading the anti-war effort are Hatfield and McGovern. Let's send it to both of them, <laughs> to their offices. And we were right out of the anti-war movement. I was out of the anti-war, anti-Vietnam movement into my faith for the first time in a long time. So we picked him out and sent it to him, and you were the one who who ended up uh, getting the copy in the office. And I remember... Hatfield, I learned later from him, he was getting letters like uh, from other evangelicals, dear former brother in Christ, because of his opposition to the war in Vietnam. So we were a kindred spirit, and you were the beginning of that relationship. Your book focuses on pilgrimage as a metaphor for faith, and really a practice of faith. You're right, leaving behind one's oars and nurturing amnesia about a target destination opens life, I was learning, to the immediate wonder of the present. It shed light into the mine shafts of my heart with its joys and pains. Say more about the experience of being on pilgrimage and what that has to teach us. Well, Jim. Um- I think
1: many of us have uh, grown up in traditions where we're basically told that we think our way into faith. You know, we've got to get the right set of intellectual beliefs. We've got to get the right neat propositions that we can say yes to, and that that's how uh, we then come into faith. That's certainly the way that uh, I was raised as as an evangelical. What I've come to see in my own journey is that we have to walk our way into faith. Uh, It it really matters uh, what we do and where we are and how we act, uh, not just as an outcome of faith, but as as the journey of faith itself. Um, So in, in my experience, um, I came to see that uh, for my faith to deepen, uh, it, it, it had to be embodied. It, it had to be lived out. And, and, and pilgrimage, both historically and also as a metaphor for our journey, is what always did that. Uh, you, you know, you had pilgrims who set off breaking away from their normal life and routine stepping out with great vulnerability. I mean, they, they they may have known they wanted to end up at the, uh, uh, you know, Cathedral Santiago. Uh, they may have known that they were headed someplace, but I mean, this was a completely vulnerable journey. They had no idea what they would encounter and they were dependent daily upon the discovery of grace, uh, of hospitality, of, of uh, wonder. Uh, and also, danger and risk, and so that act of physical pilgrimage, which continues today, had a great power in me when I spent time on the Camino de Santiago in Spain. But it also serves, I think, even for us in this time when we're sheltering in place as as a way to get a hold of what our inward journey uh, calls us to do uh, to to step out in that same way of vulnerability. And, you know, sometimes I've said, Jim, I, I've, I've lost my belief in beliefs. Um, uh, now, I, I mean, you know, if you, if you give me a theological quiz, I'd be an Orthodox Christian in terms of, you know, kind of fundamentals. But I, I just no longer think we get there by what goes into our heads. Uh, I think we get there by, uh, by, by how we act and where we walk.
0: Tell our listeners the story of your first pilgrimage, knowing your story as I do. Um, I remember you made a, a decision. It was really a, a vacation decision. <laughs> you were tired doing anti-war work and you're trying to figure out what to do to, to, uh, to uh, replenish and renew your, your body and spirit. You were trying to decide where to go, what to, what to do, and, and you made a decision And it took you on your very first pilgrimage. Explain what that was.
1: Well, you know, it was in December of 1972. Uh, If you think back or, you know, people can read history and try to remember that time. There was a presidential election. Richard Nixon had run against George McGovern. You remember, Jim, both you and I were trying to help McGovern, especially reach out to evangelicals and Nixon crushed him. Nixon won 49 states. And uh, in that interim time, he unleashed the famous Christmas bombing on North Vietnam, trying to, trying to bomb them into submission. I had been in D.C. for uh, about four years, most all of that time in anti-war work and with, with Senator Hatfield. Uh, and I was exhausted. I was depleted. And I wasn't sure what I should keep doing. I, uh, you know, I was hearing the chance of four more years for Richard Nixon,
0: uh, and and I just I I just knew I was uh, discontent. Remember, there was a group called Evangelicals for McGovern. You and I and Ron Sider were three members. I think there were five altogether. Yeah, <laughs> and That's so right. it was kind of a weary time. You're right.
1: Yeah. Uh, It was. And uh, uh, so, you know, I'd been in Church of the Savior, as you said, uh, and this was maybe about a year and a half after you and I had met. And uh, a person in Church of the Savior, a friend of mine, had had, uh, said, you should go on a retreat to Holy Cross Monastery out in Berryville sometime. And he had written the phone number on an index card of the guest master, Father Stephen, so I was at my desk and I had called my travel agent. I was about ready to book a trip to the Virgin Islands. I just wanted to get away. And, and I stared at this index card that had been sitting on my desk for probably a couple of months. And I kind of said, what the heck? I, call? I just called it and Father Stephen answered. And I kind of fumbled around and said, I, uh, do you have any time for a retreat? And he said, come right away. I got into my car and I drove out to Berryville, Virginia. I'd never been to a monastery, much less this was a Trappist monastery. I mean, this was the real deal, and I, I didn't know what I was really going to be encountering, but I knew I was beckoned to go in that direction. I was, I was, I was being beckoned from within, and I had a time there. Which I can only say changed my life, and, uh, and the whole trajectory of my life was was shifted and changed by that time. And I think that's, as I have thought back on it, that's exactly what happens on a pilgrimage. Uh, you're discontent, uh, you're unsatisfied in some way. You're yearning for more. You're not sure what it is. You know, if you sit with a therapist or a friend and they ask you, you just kind of. Mumble, say it, it's more intuitive, but you know you got to step out, and 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 I think through history and in our time today, that's that's the way pilgrimages start, and they and they often lead to life changing experiences.
0: Well, you're asking the question, uh, where do I go from here? You were exhausted, you were tired, you were weary, uh, and you weren't clear about what you should do next, and that's where uh, we often find ourselves, and. You're saying that you don't necessarily have to have the answer of where do I go from here? What's next? But you that's when you move into pilgrimage to find your way to the answer.
1: That, that's exactly right. We are so prone to planning and control and wanting outcomes. You know, any, I mean, any foundation or group, including uh, Sojourners, you, know, you go to a reply for a grant and, you know, what they want us, your is, is your desired outcomes, and can we measure it? And if, you know, we live in that system. I understand it, but there are times when we have to step out without knowing and having any assurance of what the outcome will be, and opening the space where we can ask the questions that that we most need to ask. Uh, one of the questions I love and share is, uh, "Why are you who you are?" where you are. Why are you who you are, where you are?
0: Why that question? Why are you who you are, where you are? Why that question? Because
1: that's the kind of question
0: that, that, that
1: probes the direction and purpose and deeper calling of your life. You know, most of us, look, we're busy, we're wrapped up in our, in our daily tasks, good tasks, often wonderful tasks, uh, but, but we're just in the routine. And in order for something new to happen, especially when there's an inner sense that things aren't completely right, there's got to be some kind of a disruption, something that breaks open and and creates uh, new space, uh, and that's what a pilgrimage does. And then and and then as you embark into that, you go deeper, and that kind of question is uh, is one that uh, that that rises up you know why am i who i am now where i am now is 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 this really am i really living out of my deepest calling or am i just kind of in a in, in a routine maybe even in a rut
0: or what is my deepest calling maybe i'm just exactly. just in a habitual uh routine here and i'm not even sure what that calling is
1: uh, there's another question that follows jim um Uh, I I like to think, you know, when I was on the Camino de Santiago, as I'd um, walk along uh, at certain sites um, uh, or by a, at a hostel, uh, uh, you know, in a place where pilgrims would stay, you see these things left behind uh, that that pilgrims have taken out of their packs, you know, an extra pair of shoes or a bar of soap or a book or a pair of trousers, you know, they're carrying too much. They've got to take things out of their pack. Well, that became a powerful metaphor. We, we are all carrying a lot. And in order to move ahead, we've got to leave some of that behind. And part of it, I think, is the kind of security and ego enhancement and, and um, reward we get from all that we do and all we accomplish. You know, we, we live out of that. And that becomes our identity so easily. Um, and, uh, and, and we have to say, are there, are there things like that we need to take out of our pack, especially, you know, especially as we are getting into the, the second half of our life or, or, you know, beyond that. Um, and, and the question that, that then sometimes occur, occurs is this, whose life am I living? Whose life am I living? Am I, am I am I living a life that's really rooted in my deepest call, or am I living a life that's really meeting a set of expectations of others, or of my own ego, or of my of my own pride that 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 doesn't get at what what God is calling me most deeply to do at this point?
0: So maybe we don't need a strategic plan, but more of a pilgrimage to to find where we're headed. So so many of us right now are tired and worn, uh, experiencing burnout these days. This election, you called it a spiritual battle. It was very costly. The end didn't produce a celebration, really more a sense of relief. I hear that word from lots of our, our deep friends, uh, just relief. Um, so your book is an invitation to renewal that is so deeply needed. So first, I just wanna thank you for that. Uh, And and I think your book is very timely for us right now. Why do you think that might be true? Why would this book be so timely right now? For two reasons, Jim. Uh, The first is that uh, we're at this
1: point, we're at kind of an in-between time um, with the election, the new administration, with the racial reckoning uh, moment that endures, and with the COVID and the, the promise of a vaccine, but what happens between them? we're, we're in a time where, where we really need a break that will allow us to go deeper in an inward way. Because we've got to prepare. we got to prepare for the year ahead. And, uh, and, and we're going to need uh, inner resources of clarity and discernment and um, spiritual empowerment to face that. The other thing, and I talk about this in a in the chapter of the book called Leaving the Empire, we've got to learn what it means to go on a strategic retreat in order to prepare us to re-enter into um, in, 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 in into the world that is so filled with injustice and and uh, greed and poverty, and racism that is calling for our engagement. Uh, but we've, we, we've got to take a step back to get clear again about what our deep message is and what our deepest calling is. And i like to, because it's Advent, I love the story of John the Baptist in this way. Because, you know, we forget that he was out in the wilderness. It was about 15, 20 miles from Jerusalem, which was the heart of religious and, uh, and and economic and political power. It was thoroughly corrupted. The system, you know, I mean, it was not unlike the court evangelicals who have been so close to Donald Trump, to be honest with you. Um, and John the Baptist went to the wilderness in order to hear the word that would call us to repentance and call us to a re-engagement. And then he, of course, left the wilderness and went back into Jerusalem. Jesus did the same thing. You see this pattern. Um, and, and I think it's a pattern we've got to recover. I think our social engagement and activism has got to be grounded in that time of, of stepping back in retreat, in a in a in a deeper journey in order to be clear about the questions we need to ask, the things we need to say yes to, the things we need, need to say no to, as we move ahead uh, in, our, in our attempt to welcome the vision of a beloved community.
0: So because your life has always been this, this uh, uh, what the Church was Savior and Gordon Cosby, Elizabeth O'Connor called the inward outward journey, you've never said it's time to withdraw from the public square, it's time to retreat in order to reengage in the public square
1: right I uh, absolutely uh, absolutely and I and I tell you Jim, there are movements within the Christian world today, especially the United States um, you know some people call them the Benedict option um, you, you see other uh, Christian groups who are basically saying um, uh, the whole system is is hopeless. Uh, we've got a you know we've got to retreat and regroup. We've got to be unto ourselves and protect ourselves, and uh, and and see that we are kind of secure. And the only things we're concerned about then in a public s- square are issues like religious liberty, or or some of the cultural issues uh, like uh, same sex marriage and. Uh, things like that, because the the real motive is not is is not to have uh, an ability to really change the culture and to affect politics. It's just to protect us so we can be pure and we can be safeguarded. That's a great great danger at this time. I think it's completely mistaken. I think it's deeply unbiblical. But you see that movement, and and it, it it's a movement that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I worry about
0: it. It's a self-protected piety uh, that really we're facing now. So this is all very practical. You mentioned the racial reckoning that has occurred in a new way, a deeper way, uh, during this time of COVID. I was struck about by your reflection about letting go. You said this, I carry the burden and reality of my ethno-European histories of oppression of my whiteness, still trying to understand the subtle paths of privilege that have always marked my journey. My pilgrim path beckons me to unpack these weighty realities, leave behind what I can and carry lightly what I need as I seek simply to follow Jesus. So, so letting go is a challenge for many of us. And yet, as you say, it leads to such joy and liberation. How do we look to that joy and liberation as a motivator to let go? And how in particular uh, do we apply that to where we are right now with this racial reckoning? We were in a meeting together recently, and you were offering an opening devotional. And you said this, in this time of racial reckoning, I tell you, I've thought more than ever about what I need to leave behind. I need to leave behind my white privilege, my male privilege. I need to leave behind my sense of entitlement, my assumption that I should be in charge, the expectation that those like me in the end will come up with the best answers. Unpack that.
1: Well, um, you know, that's, that's so much of my story and my journey today when I think of what's in my pack, that I need to take out, uh, that's where my heart goes now. And, it, and it's, because it, it, it's because of this fresh time of racial reckoning. Uh, those aren't questions that are new to me, but they now come with a fresh kind of urgency. I mean, I was, I was raised in the Chicago, Chicago suburbs, Park Ridge uh, High School. I went to had 4,000 students. One of them, by the way, was Hillary Rodden became Hillary Rodham Clinton. We were oh. in students together. But this, this high school did not have a single person of color. And this was in the, this was in Northwest uh, suburbs of Chicago, by O'Harefield. And my encounter with, uh, you know, w- with African American uh, individuals was uh, when we rode on the uh, Dan Ryan Expressway through the south side of Chicago and, and kind of wanted to drive fast so we'd get out of the neighborhood. Um, I mean, that, that's more or less the environment I was raised in. And, and that, infected, that infected my church. And that, that infected my whole understanding of uh, the culture of, uh, of, of faith that I was raised in. And so it has been a long journey to, um, to, to really unpack all of that. And, uh, and yes, it, it continues today because more than ever, I've thought about uh, the privilege I have being white, being a male, uh, coming from the background that I have. And this, what I've come to identify, this kind of implicit expectation that I should be in charge, and that if I gather other people like me, we're the ones who will come up with the best answers. Um, and uh, and and that's yes, that really defines uh, a large part of what I need to let go, at least at this at this stage in my journey. And I think the and, and I think the joy, I mean, the joy comes in. In, in discovering a different reality, discovering a different future. I, I suppose I had my first taste of this joy um, when I was called to work with the World Council of Churches. And and so suddenly I'm in Geneva, but I'm traveling around the world and meeting with Christians from all these different cultural backgrounds and, of course, racial and national Uh, differences and and seeing in those settings the great uh, power and and uh, joy of uh, of of, of the Christian community that that is shaped so different than the one that uh, that that I uh, was shaped by and that and that for so long has been dominant as you know, as the main force of Christianity in the West. Uh, I mean, you know, Western Christianity has been shaped by white male voices and personalities, period. Um, And now Christianity has moved with such accelerated force to the nations of what we call the two-thirds world or the global South and you see a whole new version, a whole new expression of Christianity coming to the fore that really is, is shaping the future of Christianity. And and for, for folks like me, you know, it's my challenge to figure out how do I participate in what God is clearly doing instead of simply saying, well, what's going to happen now if we lose these uh, these vestiges of influence and power? And I, I, I very much feel that that's related to this experience of pilgrimage as we leave behind and then step forward to embrace the new.
0: Your previous 10 books, uh, a couple of them are about this reality, what God is doing in the global church is coming from the global south. And the leadership now of the church internationally is coming from the global South and Christians of color, and to leave behind the leadership of American Christianity uh, and to leave behind in this nation, the leadership of white American Christianity, where in the, the best contribution to the global church and to the to the globe from the churches in this country has in my view been the African-American churches, the black churches. And so, for for white Christians to understand that the joy and liberation you talk about will come from engaging, embracing, and solidarity, and 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 being led by Black church leaders, standing alongside and standing behind Black church leaders as they lead uh, the global church along with the church in the global South. That that's an encounter and an embracing. And a letting go and a joy and liberation that that we will never know if we don't let go of those things you're talking about. That we and people like us finally will be in charge and figure all this out. Yeah,
1: I think that's true. And you know, I I I think it's a I think it's a theological uh, and you know I I often have have said because I came to feel that the spirit of God is most present and powerful. Only when the full diversity of the body of Christ is present. I mean, there's there's just uh, you know this isn't a matter of just uh, you know getting racial's right and and having uh, you know uh, uh, having token and representatives and all that kind of stuff. This is really a matter of believing that God's Spirit is most powerful when the diversity of the body of Christ is fully present, and, and and that has a huge challenge to us because of what has happened in the in the global church today, as you say.
0: And the biblical arc, like you and I have talked about so often, uh, of race in the Bible begins with, you know, Genesis 1, 26, uh, then God said, let us make humanity in our own image and likeness. And then it ends in Revelation where what happens is what you just said. Revelation 7, where it says, I, I it couldn't count, <laughs> couldn't count the multitudes of those who were together worshiping God in their own tongues and languages and who they were in all their great diversity. That's, there wasn't this sort of uh, homogenous culture that got created. Uh, but this whole notion of all the diversity of God's creation at the end, worshiping God together uh, as who they are in their own languages and tribes and cultures and identity. And that's the goal. That That's where the biblical arc ends. That's where we're headed. And so all this talk about uh, needing a multiracial democracy for the first time in this country, we've never really had it or the beloved community Dr. King talked about so much in John Lewis, it's rooted in that whole that whole arc of where the Bible's taking us. And this to embrace that diversity, you just said it so well, the full power, the full power of God won't be experienced and expressed until we are all of us together in the most diverse ways God has made us. That's to embrace the power of that is the best future for all of us. You know, it goes back uh, to another
1: example that I like to think of as a, as a kind of an enforced pilgrimage in the, in the story of the early church. The power of the early church was in Jerusalem um, and that it came under some attack. And then some members went out and they went on, a, on an enforced journey uh and you read about this in acts and there's a kind of a reckless spirituality about it uh you know the, the the stories of um of encountering the ethiopian eunuch for instance i mean this is such a bizarre story of 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 what is actually happening or or peter's absolute astonishment at uh the spirit of god being poured out to gentiles and then these disciples who are making this journey from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Antioch was, uh, I think, it was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, a completely cosmopolitan, multiracial place, and they form a church, and the leadership of that church recorded and act as a multiracial leadership. And that's the church that caused so much problems that they sent Barnabas from Jerusalem to find out if it was... You know, kosher or not, and it wasn't because because they were saying that you don't. And this this is a this is a question we never quite think about. But they were saying you don't have to become Jewish in order to become a follower of Christ. That that was what the real debate was as Christianity was emerging. Um, uh, that 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 this was genuinely a new community, um, and it was from Antioch that the mission of the early church spread out to all the known world in the Roman Empire. It wasn't from Jerusalem, it was, from, it was, it was, it was there from Antioch and from what I, I have a chapter in the book called Reckless Spirituality. And I, and I trace what was actually happening as, 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 as these disciples led out in what can only be called a vulnerable pilgrimage. And and you see and you see the result. There's a there, there's a New Testament um, scholar who writes about this. And he coined this phrase that I love. He said what was happening in the early church is that this it, it was a principle of non assimilation. Now you think about it, non assimilation. Uh, you, you know, and this is one of the geniuses of Christian faith that it enters into any culture and is able to work its way out of this vast variety of different cultures and different languages with the with the message of the of the gospel it's it's not a message that we're so accustomed to of assimilation it's non-assimilation and and, and we need to know that so much as we think about our future even politically here
0: Jim well in fact uh, that your chapter the Antioch story is really powerful in the book. I commend that to all of our li- listeners. And we ought to have a whole new conversation in our churches about Antioch. That's the first place we're called Christians. Uh, the first place I think that we called got called Christians, where the new thing was created there, which was uh I, I love that power and principle of non-assimilation. So you don't have to have to be Jewish to be part of this. And you don't have to be white american christian to be part of this and the colonial the colonial centering of christian faith all over the world was in fact against that antioch principle not like we're all who's god who god made us to be but we have to assimilate now into this european american white culture uh and the whole story of that so painful all over the world and today still so the decolonizing of, of Christian faith is really was it an Antioch? <laughs> so, so that story, let's, let's renew Antioch among us. It's a powerful word in the chapter.
1: Let me tell you one quick story um, I, that illustrates that. In Africa, um, there are a group of churches that are called African instituted churches. They were established by Africans for Africans not by missionaries, and often against the colonial missionary enterprise. One of them was the Church of the Lord Adalora, which has its base in Nigeria. I got to know its Archbishop, Primate Rufus Osotelo. He invited me to an event in Nigeria um, at Mount Tabarora that they have every year. I went, I was given a white robe, uh, was told to take off my shoes, entered a ground with a hundred thousand other pilgrims and we prayed and sang and danced our way through the entire night into the morning happens every year this was faith that is embodied faith lived out of that cultural expression church that grows up against the imposition of colonial rule and an example precisely of what you're saying, and it's one of the it, it it's one of the pilgrimage experiences that I describe in the book
0: as illustrating this and having such a deep effect so the decolonizing of of Christian faith, which many many uh, strong emerging voices young voices of color are calling for, isn't just political or a political act or a political task it's about a pilgrimage it's about embarking on a whole new pilgrimage that takes us to what God is doing in the world. You, you've always, throughout your book, you, you talk about how pilgrimage can be both inner and outer, one informing the other. It's never one or the other. And you write, the authentic pilgrim journey moves in two directions, outward and inward. And the journey toward a holy destination <laughs> uh, enables us to cast off enough superficial layers to access our true selves. Um, And you recently said uh, that COVID has already disrupted everything. It's already erased our normalcy. It's already introduced this huge circumstance where we can't go ahead in the way we did before and we do Thanksgiving differently and Christmas and family, everything now is so different. The question we face is, are we going to resent that? Or can we see this time as a gift that forces us to stop, open up a new space for an inward journey that involves detachment, taking a step away from our normal sense of self and asking these probing questions. Who are you? And who you are, where you are, for any of us to go forward, we need to ask and answer those questions. How can COVID, where all of its pain and disruption and suffering, and all that is lost, how could COVID be, be be a gift for that kind, of, for this kind of pilgrimage and this kind of, of reflection?
1: It's forced us all to take the first necessary step, which is which is to disrupt our sense of normalcy. Uh, it, that that's always the first step to to step out of what our routine is now that's been imposed upon us. it's been imposed upon us and so it offers us as you as you quoted it offers us that choice and and um and it and it raises the, the deepest questions of course of life and death and equity and privilege all these things get raised by covid uh, and I, I think it does offer us the opportunity to say uh, we can
0: embark on a deeper inward journey uh, because of the time we find ourselves in. So it's an occasion uh, forced upon us uh, to undertake the kind of pilgrimage you're talking about. Here. I think so, Jim. Back to politics, because we, we always talk about politics, you and I. Um, so you're saying that, that John the Baptist uh, made a pilgrimage uh, away from power, reversing the pilgrimage to power, um, all of that. But, but you're not saying that our faith pilgrimage should take us away from politics. Um, how, how does our spiritual and contemplative life ultimately uh, it, our, our will, our spiritual and contemplative life ultimately take us away from the public square, or rather teach us how to reengage?
1: You know, there's a, there's a quote by, a, it was actually a French author that I picked up that I love. And it says, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I am, Jim. Um, and I think, at least speaking out of my experience, that the inward journey uh, creates a sense of relinquishment and abandonment into the depth of the love of God which you realize and and come to experience as so vast and so overpowering and and uh, so deep embracing every person the whole created order and once you begin to discover how you kind of root yourself there you are in Im- you are compelled and drawn back into the heart of all that that uh, diminishes and prohibits that. So you're thrust into the middle of politics, uh, but not for, uh, you know, some short-term uh, political gains, but rather because, you know, that's the place where this embracing love of God has to break through structures and institutions and policies that are diminishing and prohibiting and crushing and delimiting other people. So so, so I, I, at least in my experience, um, the inward journey ends up compelling you into the depth of the outward journey Um, And I think it was this way for the, I think it was this way for Martin Luther King. It was this way for so many of the great uh, reformers in our, in our tradition. Um, It's this, it's this uh, continual rhythm. uh, And it's, it's the rhythm that I like about pilgrimage. We're called
0: away in order to enter more deeply into the world. Well, what I loved about reading your book were, were many things, but one was how, as you point out, John is decentering power, John the Baptist in his pilgrimage away from Jerusalem, but not to abandon politics, but more to change politics. You and I have talked about the politics of Jesus for years or God's politics. We both write, write about what that means. Reminds me of this, what we all know about how things change. It's really movements outside of power this dance between the outside and the inside you talk about dr king and all the movements that have inspired you and i for years it's always how how outside movements uh that are rooted on the outside can change politics on the inside and it doesn't just change from the outside it has to be navigated uh, engaged with the inside but it's it's if if you're rooted inside power if all you need is one is access to power. Washington loves to grant access with no results, you know, who gets the call, who, who gets their calls re- re- returned, who's in the room is Washington's uh, like the Hamilton story and play. Who's in the room is the Washington issue. And that's not the Jesus issue. Who's in the room? It's, it's how does the room get changed? So it's whole movement inside, outside. That's what's p- powerful here at this moment in time, right now. You know, you know, Hamilton's question,
1: uh, the question in Hamilton, who's in the room? I, I think from what you we were saying, Jim, the
0: question is, why are you in the room? Why are you in the room? That's the question. Yeah, and, and, and uh, just keep coming back to the room. If you say the wrong things in the room, you're worried you might not be invited back. Right? So so this whole, this whole inside-outside uh, dance relationship Movement. This is where we're headed right now. We're at that moment in time where pilgrimage away from power is the only way then to come back and re enter and transform those power relationships and change what we mean by politics. Exactly. Well, finally, we're in the you and I could talk all day about this and probably will, but we shouldn't have the podcast go on for half a day here. So we're in the Advent season and And in your most recent op-ed for Religion News Service, you described your own pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And then you wrote this, a pilgrimage liberates the one who is wandering and waiting for the love of God from the cult of efficiency. Becoming expectant of changing scenes and uninvited companions opens a pilgrim up to wonder like a manger becoming a cradle, and shepherds hearing angels. <laughs> in what ways is this Advent season open you to awe and wonder, and what are you anticipating on your pilgrimage toward 2021?
1: Well, Jim, um, this Advent has been in many ways like none other, um, and I, when I think of you know, our propensity, what I write there for efficiency and planning. um, And of course, all the, you know, the probably scores of strategic planning processes I've been involved in. Um, I'm, I'm more convinced now that what we need is spiritual preparedness. Um, Because look, what are the two things that have happened in the last uh, less than a year in, in, uh, in 2020, that have had a dramatic influence on every one of our lives and calling into our deepest resources. They are uh, the coronavirus epidemic and the killing of George Floyd and all that came before and then after in this moment of racial reckoning. Neither of those could ever have been predicted. And both of them have entered into our lives in ways that call upon the deepest resources. That's what I'm trying to remember this Advent. Uh, the, the, you know, Advent is this time when we, we, we look for the unexpected. We look for the unexpected moments of grace. We also look for those events that we, you know, we can't predict, but we have to be prepared for. I mean, that's why the, you know, the, the passages from Isaiah that get reflected by John the Baptist are prepare the way. So, you know, we, we can't prepare the way without preparing ourselves and uh, and and this advent i think more than other times is calling me to prepare prepare myself and you know the year ahead i have no idea what it what it may bring but i i do know it's it's going to be a time when we've got a we, we've got to remain connected to our center in order to be the the most liberating and most helpful uh kinds of influences that we can in a, a as a new administration comes in and as a, a whole set of new challenges will continue to come upon us.
0: We talked at the beginning of this conversation about one of our our mentors Gordon Cosby of Church of the Savior. And as you know one of my principal mentors also was Vincent Harding who was in the inner circle of the southern movement with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And he would often say to me, because he would sense my, my urgency to, to start movements and build movements and change everything around us. He would say to me, Jim, you can't start a movement, but you can prepare for one. You can't start a movement, but you can prepare for one. And I hear that's what you're calling us to today. It certainly is. My brother, could you close us with a prayer, a prayer for the kind of pilgrimage that would take us away from, I would say, all the heresies of American white Christianity. There are so many heresies and idols that we need to be be set free from. Uh, And the global church is waiting for us to join what God is doing, like Antioch a long time ago, doing it all over again. Uh, but this isn't going to come with a strategic plan. It's going to come with a prayerful pilgrimage to let go and give up and move beyond the things that we've depended on for a long time. So that's that's really, that re- requires prayer. So could you say a prayer for us as we enter into a new pilgrimage in a new moment, uh, both for the church and for the state in this country?
1: Certainly, Jim. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are so grateful that when we listen and open ourselves, your call can be heard. Even though sometimes it may seem like you speak with a whisper and don't always complete your sentences, yet we know that if we center ourselves and open our hearts deeply, we will hear what is needed for our next steps in the journey where you call us. So we ask you would help each of us to prepare, to prepare ourselves so we can prepare the way of the Lord. And that you will guide us as we understand more deeply what we need to let go of in order to embrace the future that. You have already been shaping and calling us to give us those moments of unexpected grace that will sustain us. And we thank you for the paths that are already made for each one of us and ask that we may be, we may be empowered to discover the ways that have already been put into place. We ask this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you for joining us, Wes. And thank you for the pilgrimage that we have been on together uh, for so many years. Thank you, John. To hear more from Wes, follow him on Twitter at Wes WGM. Wes at Wes. To hear more from Wes, follow him on Twitter at Wes WGM. Wes WGM. And check out his new book. Without oars, casting off into a life of pilgrimage, a timely book for a time such as this. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you like, at Jim Walls. Blessings on all of you for the soul of this nation.